Go around. All right. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll get on the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to listen to your word. Uh, please help me to speak clearly, and please help all of us to listen carefully. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as a result, um, our hearts might be strengthened and encouraged, that we might live our life to praise the risen Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning once again. Uh, it's really uh, great to be here. Thank you so much for your kind invitation to come and to preach on Jeremiah. Um, uh, covering a book like Jeremiah within 12-week series uh, is challenging thing for both preacher and the congregation because it forces you to be selective. Um, and in order to be selective, you need to make difficult decision on uh, what to include and what to leave out uh, in your series. But, you know, every part of the Bible is important and it's a ludicrous idea to think that you can decide which part of the Bible is deemed worthy to be looked at and which one is not. And so I feel uneasiness as we skip chapter 2 and launch straight into chapter 3 this morning. But believe me, it's not because um, I think chapter 2 is unimportant or boring. Um, what I did in my preparation was to look at chapter 3 verses 1, 2, or chapter 4 verse 4 in light of the whole uh, context of chapter 2 to 6. So um, even though I may not be uh, making a direct reference to, to uh, some parts of the Bible, uh, in, especially in, in chapters 2, 5 and 6, I have these um, chapters in my mind, uh, in, in my background. So let me strongly encourage you when you go home and uh, to look at these chapters if you have not already done so. Uh, let's then turn to uh, chapter 3 and to spend a few moments to see what God has to say to us. Um, and then to think about uh, what God has said to them and then to us uh, in turn. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible in general and uh, the book of Jeremiah in particular, you might be a little bit puzzled or confused as, you, as we read um, the first part of chapter 3 because it suddenly speaks about divorce. So let me uh, make it slightly easier for you to follow here, in the, the, the first thing that we need to notice is that God is very upset. Um, I was listening very carefully to the way um, Chris read the passage. Um, could you feel the, 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 the kind of frustration and the anger um, that God was experiencing? It's because people were committing idolatry. That is, worshipping gods other than the God of their ancestors, their ancestors, the true God who rescued them from Egypt in the land of slavery a long time ago. But the word idolatry is not mentioned in today's passage. Instead, um, you see the word adultery several times. So uh, in chapter 3, verse 6, we read, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on uh, every high hill and uh, under every sp uh, spreading tree and has committed adultery there. Uh, it's a very strong and unpleasant accusation, but God is accusing his people of committing adultery with other gods um, when, in fact, God was their husband. You see there in verse 14. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, the word adultery sounds more wrong. It stirs up 
much stronger emotional reaction within me than the word idolatry. Or as idolatry sounds, let's say, I don't know, maybe a bit theoretical or impersonal, the word adultery immediately stirs up anger. It just feels more wrong, more personal. I guess it's because um, I'm more familiar with the horror and the disaster adultery uh, can cause in our lives. Uh, In fact, uh, in my 25 years of ordained ministry, having to deal with the aftermath of adultery has been one of the most painful and difficult pastoral situations. I don't want to do it again. Every now and then this issue come up and every time I have to deal with it, it is just excruciatingly painful. It devastates family, it devastates individual, it devastates me, it devastates the whole church. The NIV Bible that we use in our church chose the word uh, prostitute in verses uh, 1, 2 and 3 and therefore one might, one might be thinking of as someone who is selling their body for a monetary gain. But that's not what he's being referred to here. God is simply saying that the people of Israel chose to serve other gods, the gods of their surrounding nations, and that was like to God an unfaithful wife committing adultery with men other than her husband. Now look at the second half of verse 3. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. That is, the people of Israel felt absolutely no shame whatsoever in committing these acts with brazen look. They were so bold in their worship of other gods that in verse 2 we read, Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished or is there any place where you have not committed the act of prostitution? When you read these words, we are meant to feel and share God's pain and his anguish towards his people. But you see, that's not all. On three occasions, in verses 1, 2, and later in in verse 9, we find the reference to land being defiled by their adultery. So, for example, in verse 2, by the roadside you sat among the lovers, set like a nomad in the desert, you have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Or we read on in verse 3, therefore... The showers have been withheld, and the no spring rain has fallen. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute, and you refuse to blush with shame. The people's behaviour affecting the land is something that uh, we are not too familiar with. But in the Bible, it pops up every now and then. Say, for example, in Psalm 106, verse 38, or Ezekiel 16. We think, well, our behaviour is our behaviour and, the, and the, the natural environment is natural environment and there's no uh, close connection between the two. Maybe the Aboriginal people uh, may have uh, something slightly different worldview, but we Western uh, people in the Western society, we sort of detach those two things. The natural world and they're independent of us and things like that. 
the important thing to, uh, to, to notice here is that as a result of the people committing adultery with the foreign gods, the land became defiled, and as a result of the land being defiled, people were experiencing severe drought. We, uh, we Australians know better than anyone else the terrible impact of prolonged drought. It wasn't too long ago that the, land, um, the, the, the water level in Warragamba Dam fell below 50%. Remember that? The whole Sydney went into a panic mode. The water restriction kicked in. The government not only ran media campaign, but all kinds of ideas uh, were, were being circulated, including building a desalination plant and raising the dam level by a few metres and things like that. I remember we prayed for rain every Sunday. That's what drought does to you. It brings you to your knees. Any hardship is painful and difficult to bear, but as they make us look at ourselves and turn to God for help, they are an expression, an extension of God's kindness towards us. It's kind of a wake-up call. They humble us before God and forces us to see if there is anything in us that we ought to repent. So, friends, um, when you go through a difficult period, sometimes it just happens because we live in a fallen world. But whether um, there is something in your life that you need to repent or not, it's always the first thing that we need to be doing when things go sour and, and we find things difficult, the first thing that we as Christian people need to be doing is to see whether there is anything in our life that we need to turn away from. But not so with Israel. They refuse to blush with shame, verse 3, their arrogance or their stupidity, depending on which way you look, <clears throat> look at it. It was just mind-boggling. What about you? Has there been a time when hardship struck as a wake-up call and suddenly you realise, okay, God is telling me something and I need to repent. <clears throat> and when you look back, those periods may have been very painful experience, but thank God. God has kindness towards me that I had an opportunity to, to turn away and repent. But you know, it's really sad to see the way God's people reacted. <clears throat> in the next section, in um, verses 6 to 13, we find them even more frustrating. Again, um, if you're not too familiar with the Bible, uh, let me give you a short background information to help you understand what is going on here. Uh, some 300 years before Jeremiah... 300 is a long time. Um, 300 years ago, well, that was, a, that was before Industrial Revolution. That's actually the time of, um, of enlightenment. Long time ago. But some 300 years before Jeremiah's time, um, soon after King Solomon died, Israel as a nation experienced the kind of a civil war and the country became divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel, while the southern kingdom, which stood in line with King David, took up the name Judah. 
The northern kingdom, Israel, only lasted about 200 years as they rejected God and uh, persisted in the path on the path of idolatry. God destroyed them by the hand of then the superpower Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah continued on after the destruction of Israel, but not for too long. It only lasted another 125 years uh, after that as Babylon came and destroyed them. And uh, this historical background is being referred to uh, here in this section. So in verse 6, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? Now, the, the, the word Israel there is referring to the northern kingdom. Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. And I thought, after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And an unfaithful sister, Judah, well, she saw it too. I gave faithless Israel a certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all the adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. The destruction of their northern neighbour was meant to serve as a wake-up call, as a warning sign, just like the drought. But the people of the, the south took no notice and continued on with their adultery. Did you notice, in verse 6, there's a little um, time reference there that you might have just skipped over. It says, during the reign of King Josiah. Now, Josiah was the fifth last king of Judah. Um, After him, the country lasted only about 43 years um, as uh, his three sons reigned in succession at a short period. <clears throat> Josiah was an important <clears throat> sorry. Josiah was an important figure in Israel's uh, uh, Judah's history because he was the last one who had a genuine fear of the Lord and tried everything that he could to turn the country back to fearing God. We read um, in two Kings chapter twenty two onwards uh, what extensive religious reform he tried to carry out. You know, um, yesterday. Down at Sheffield site, we carried out an extensive cleanup of the place. The council cleanup's coming up, and, and therefore we decided to do some work. You should come down and see the rubbish and the unused furniture that was thrown out. Piles and piles of uh, accumulated junk over the years. You know, like uh, I've been living in the rectory for the last 20 years, and I'm not looking forward to the day that I move out of the, the rectory. The, the amount of stuff that I have accumulated, and the things that I don't even know, I don't want to see. Well, Josiah tried to clean, out all, clean all this out, and it was a mighty effort. But take a look at God's assessment of this reform in verses 9 and 10. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, 
she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. Josiah might have been genuine. Well, actually, he was genuine. He seriously feared God and he desperately wanted the whole country to follow him and, and take, uh, and he, as he took the lead, all the, the um, shrines were destroyed, the temple was restored, uh, people brought back um, the regular worship of God as the Bible was read out. And uh, if you read uh, 2 Kings 22 and 23, there was some wailing as well as people uh, began to realise what they've done. But you see, when things come down from the top to the bottom and people are just following the instruction and they think the kind of change of habit um, is going to make a difference, well, the answer is it doesn't. You know, like we think... um, if we just fix our behaviour a little bit, then um, you can actually make a genuine change. But it doesn't affect the heart. The problem is not the external behaviour. The problem is what is inside the heart. What your heart desires. What affection that you have in your, in your heart And so, despite all the reform, things have not got any better. People kept on behaving the way they have. And so, look at verse 13. What is God saying here? Only acknowledge your guilt. Only acknowledge your guilt. That's all you need to do. As we know about people of Israel, they refused. And 43 years later on, well, the Babylon came and put an end to this nation. But... As we come to the final part, um, much longer section, uh, and I'm not going to be dealing with um, uh, this part in in great detail. As we read through this section, it seems like there's kind of an oscillation going on. Uh, It it sounds as if it is raising hope. Um, It sounds as if, yes, uh, people actually, they can. They can change their heart. They can and they will respond and then it swings to the other way and says, no, it's not going to happen. So let me, let me just read it out to you. You see there in verse 16, it says, in those days, God is saying sometime down in the future, in those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, the people will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. That is, you can so feel confident about your... Um, spiritual state because you have all the right equipment, um, all the external 
things. The church looks great. You belong to the right denomination. You come to church all dressed up. And you can have false assurance in those things. It seems to me that what God is saying is, in the future, people will no longer do that. They're not going to rely on the kind of external or, or a kind of what symbolised um, the, the reality, the, the external symbols, symbols only. So people will no longer say, Ark of the Lord, of the covenant of the Lord. They will never enter their mind and be remembered. They will not be missed, nor will another be made. At the time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Finally, people begin to realise who God really is. And all the nations will gather in Jerusalem to, to honour the name of the Lord. And no longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel. And together they will come from a northern land to the land that I gave to their ancestors as their inheritance. Sounds like finally something's going to happen. God is actually going to turn things all around and, and make things right. It's a hope raised. And then straight away in verse 19, God says, I myself said, how gladly would I have treated you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But, like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the, on the barren heights, the weeping and the pleading of the, the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. We brought back down to the, the, the reality, the, the present circumstance. Will it ever change? Will Israel finally rid of idolatrous mind and fear the Lord and serve him and him only? How can this happen? Who is going to make the difference? Will there be another reform? Well, in order for this change to take place, there are a few things that are mentioned here that is absolutely crucial. In order for people to have a genuine fear of God, people to enter into a proper relationship with God, and their faith be genuine, a few things must take place. That is, look at um, um, uh, verses 22 onwards. Return, faithless people. I will cure of your backsliding. And then it seems like there's a separate group of people who are responding to God's call in the most wonderful, amazing, positive, genuine way. Listen to what they say. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the adulterous uh, commotion on the hills and the mountains is a, is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. 
From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of your, uh, our ancestors' labor, their flocks and their herds and their sons and daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our ancestors. From our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. Just as God said, only acknowledge your guilt. That's exactly what people are doing here. Contrary to um, the, the brazen look of a prostitute, there is this perhaps imaginary group of people who turn to God and say, yep, we have done the wrong thing. We've sinned. Against the Lord our God, we have not obeyed him. Um, admitting your guilt is always the most difficult thing to do. You know, um, I, I was having a conversation with Jessica uh, two days ago. She asked me to uh, put away salad that she made the night before for the guests arriving in the morning. She went to bed early, uh, a little bit earlier because... You know, after a long day, she was just tired, and she said, when this cools down, your job is to put it in the fridge before you go to bed. Now, those of you whose husbands are shaking your head, you've done the same thing, haven't you? Right? I forgot. And when I woke up to a scream, or well, it wasn't a scream, it was actually a, a sigh of frustration... I realized what I've done. And I was scrambling to find an excuse. <laughs> what will justify my stupidity, my ignorance, my lack of cooperation? And I said to her, um, when, I, <laughs> when I finished writing my whatever email that I was writing, I came out and I, I felt the... the, the the salad, and it was still warm. And I thought, it's going to take maybe overnight for it to cool down. <laughs> I was going to wake up like 5 o'clock in the morning and put it in the fridge. It was 7 o'clock. Now, acknowledging guilt is always the hardest thing for me to other people, let alone to God. But repentance is the first step of a genuine restoration, isn't it? When we want to have a proper relationship with God, the very first thing that we need to be doing is to repent. And that's what we did in our service today. And um, I really hope and pray that whenever we say the, the prayer of repentance, uh, it's a little bit hard when we do this every week and uh, we are following kind of a set prayer and uh, we're just uh, rattling off the words, but always the sign of a genuine faith in God is to feel the pain, the burden of ungodliness in our life and our disobedience of him and our, our disregard of his words. The trouble is, for the people of Israel, many attempts have been made 
to turn these people around. I mean, Josiah, he tried everything that he could to turn people's mind around. It was a, a, a mighty effort. And yet, only after his death, it took 43 years for that nation to be utterly destroyed. Um, there are few glimpses here uh, of the promise that God is making. Well, you might have failed, but I have an, an alternate idea. And so, for example, if you look at verse 14, it says, Return, O faithless, uh, people of Israel, uh, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I'm going to choose you. One from the town and two from the clan, and bring you to Zion. And I will give you a shepherds. I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. Or down in verse 22, I will cure you of your backsliding. Or over to chapter 4, verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your heart. And so there are a number of hints uh, dropped here and there that somehow God is going to do something that will make that fundamental change, it is not yet clear uh, so far from the parts of the Jeremiah that we've read so far how this will all work out. Well, we'll have to carefully work our way through the rest of, of Jeremiah. But we know that this circumcision, the circumcision of the heart that Jeremiah spoke about, is none other than the coming of God's Spirit to change our heart by the power of the one who created the world. By his power, he would change our hearts that we might turn away from serving ourselves and serving anything other than the true God to see the glory and the power and authority that is in our Lord Jesus. I'm, um, uh, today, this afternoon, uh, I'm um, leading the fourth study of um, the Newcomers Program that I've been running um, for 11.30am uh, congregation. Uh, thank God, during the last uh, th uh, three or four weeks, we've had like 15 visitors uh, visiting the 11.30am congregation. And out of those 15 people, uh, at least I can see that at least five of them um, have never been to church before. And so they've been coming along uh, to this um, Newcomers Program and I've, we've been spending a lot of time thinking about um, this whole idea of, of sin and repentance. One of them um, came to me after uh, the study and said, you know, it is deeply offensive. It is really, really offensive for you to say that I need to say sorry. He said, as far as I can see, uh, I'm a decent human being. Uh, I, it is... Genuinely in my heart, I have no ill intention towards anybody else. And for, for, God to, for you to say that God is angry towards me because of the way I've treated him is deeply offensive. And I said, well, I'm glad that you got the message. <laughs> because, quite frankly, people don't get it. I don't know um, whether that is your experience. Um, one of the first things that, that, that people find difficult to, to accept 
is that they need to repent. Uh, will these people, will she, will Israel, will she, can she repent? Well, um, let's see uh, how um, God does this. Um, but thank God, thank God that by the power of the gospel in coming of the Holy Spirit, he has enabled us to see that we are in desperate need of God's forgiveness. And there is nothing in ourselves, uh, nothing that, that we can do to change ourselves. Thank God that Christ has done for us. So as we um, leave, fill your hearts with joy and thankfulness, knowing that Christ is, uh, uh, is our Lord and he died for us and is risen and he's our guarantee, our salvation. Praise God that we have this gospel in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark. If you have called us to account of the way we have lived, we would stand no chance. Father, we remember our arrogance, our ignorance, our proud heart before we came to know Christ. But now that we know what we were like, and now we know that what you had have done in order to forgive us, our Father, we humble ourselves before you and that we praise you. And thank you for rescuing us and thank you for calling us your children despite our failures. Uh, Father, please... Uh, Fill our hearts with joy and thankfulness, knowing that Christ is our Lord. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.